Amen. Amen. My mic on. We on? Not quite. That's cool because um, uh, I was thinking while we were um, singing, you know, it's days like today that I wish I played an instrument. You know, because, uh, you know, I can sing. We all know that. So, but I wanted to do, I wanted to do more than just sing, man. I wanted to play. And uh, wow, what a, what a gracious and wonderful God we have. And uh, thank God for those who lead us in song and in instrument. Um, thank God for their gifts, uh, for their singing voices, for their ability to play for their willingness to do so, the joy that they express in doing it. It encourages me. I pray that we all would be encouraged and thank God for them. And maybe one day, one day, I'm going to grab me an instrument, and uh, a keyboard, or there we go, or a saxophone. We could use a saxophone, couldn't we, Gary? That's right. <laughs> Amen. Let us give thanks to God. Let us pray and ask his blessing upon us as we go into his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for the wonderful privilege of coming together as your people called out from the world, called out from darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of your dear son. Oh, Father, let us not take that for granted this morning. But let us relish in it. Let us humbly understand how much grace we have received. Let us exalt in you and in your word. O word of God, come. Open our ears that we might hear you. O word of God, come. Touch our hearts and lead us into the obedience of faith. Oh, Word of God, Spirit of God, speak this morning. Have your way, O oh Lord. Thank you for all that you are doing, have done, and will do in the life of this church, in all your people, wherever they are gathered this morning. May they know truths of your promises, and may the gospel be awakened in them once again. This is our prayer, O oh God. We pray it in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are coming here to the end of the life of Jephthah. And as we have been looking at the life of Jephthah, as we have been making our way through the book of Judges, I was reminded this week of an old saying that says, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. You know, that is a familiar saying. It's one of those sayings through, our, through the history of the world that everybody likes to take credit for. And so you go and look up, well, who exactly said that? And you'll get a litany of people who are credited with saying it. But regardless of who said it, it is true. And those who do not remember their history are often doomed to repeat it. And the only ones who don't believe this are the ones who ignore history. 
And we see this. We see this in the history of the world. We see this in the history of warfare. We see this in the history of nation building. We see this in our own history. We see it in the history of our lives, in the type of relationships that we find ourselves in and gravitating toward. We see it in our own sin. In fact, the Bible reminds us when Paul is, is writing to the Corinthians, he writes to them and he begins to talk about the Israelites in the Old Testament and he begins to draw examples from the history of Israel to make his points to, to make his point to the Corinthians. And he says in First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, he says, "Now these things happen, considering what happened in the Old Testament with the Israelites." He says, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. They happened to them for an example, and they were written down not simply as history, but they were written down for our instruction. Why? So that we would not repeat the same foolishness. And also so that we might glory in the one who delivered the Israelites, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words... Don't forget the history, because if you forget the history, you're doomed to repeat it. This has been the message of judges, has it not? The judges in Israel's history and the judges has been just that, a history of forgetting, of forgetting the the trials, of forgetting and ignoring the history and thus repeating it over and over and over again as we see the cycle of Judges. This is the theme that has run throughout the book of Judges and particular, this is what we see in the life of Jephthah as well. For Jephthah's life is a, an unfortunate and yet demonstrative example of a life as lived out according to the rest of the book of Judges, a life lived in conflict and contradiction. And we saw that with all the other judges, conflict and contradictions, conflict and contradictions. And we see it epitomized here in the life of Jephthah. And yet, and yet still, even though, even though there's, there's this life that is conflicted and there's this life that is full of contradictions, Jephthah is blessed of God. I think that should be encouraging to us this morning. That though there's conflict and though there's contradiction, God is still with Jephthah. God is still with the nation of Israel. God is yet with us. And so we'll look at the life of Jephthah here. We come to the end of his life. We'll look at the two final elements of his life, the final conflict, and we'll see the final contradiction. But then after we see the final conflict and we see the final contradiction toward the end, we'll see three lessons that we learn from the life of Jephthah. Amen? 
the final conflict, the final contradiction, and then three important lessons that we learn from the life of Jephthah. But let's look at this final conflict. Jephthah's life has been a life of conflict. As we've seen from chapter 11 on into chapter 4, he's had conflict almost all of his life. In chapter 11 and verse 3, he conflicted with his brothers. In chapter 11 and verse 7, he conflicted with the elders of Gilead. In in chapter 11 and, and verse 12 and following, we see that he conflicted with the Ammonites. And then in chapter 11 and verse 35, we see that he even conflicted with himself. And here in chapter 12, in verses 1 through 3, we see the final conflict. Jephthah is in conflict with his fellow countrymen, the Ephraimites. He's just a conflicted man. Seems like wherever he goes, conflict follows him. And here to the end of his life, you would think that he has got this victory over the Ammonites and you would think that all of Israel would be rejoicing and they would be glad that Jephthah had led them to this victory. But instead, his fellow countrymen, indeed the Ephraimites, they come and they got a problem. And rather than bringing joy, they come with jealousy. They accuse Jephthah of grandstanding. They accuse Jephthah of wanting all of the glory and all of the fame. They accuse Jephthah of neglecting to call on them when he went out to fight against the Ammonites. It would appear, it would appear here that the, that the tribe of, of Ephraim, apparently they wanted all the glory but didn't want to risk any guts. It would, it would appear that they wanted to share in the bragging rights, but they didn't want to risk the shedding of any blood. But this is not the first time that we see the tribe of Ephraim doing this type of thing. You might remember in, in chapter 8 when, when Gideon had won his, his victory, these same, this same tribe came to Gideon and they said, Gideon, why have you assumed all of the glory for yourself? Why did you not call us to the battle so that we might play, play a part in the victory? Seemed like this tribe is just one of those Johnny-come-lately people. They want to show up after all the work is done and celebrate and eat and get full. They want to eat the feast. They don't want to spend any time in the kitchen. Well, it would appear that probably on normal circumstances, Jephthah might have a little more patience with him. But considering all that has happened in Jephthah's life, you can imagine that he has very little tolerance for this type of thing right now. When they came to Gideon, Gideon was very diplomatic with them, and, and Gideon was sort of understanding. And so Gideon kind of uses psychology on them and tells them, no, 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 God has something special for the tribe of Ephraim. Well, it would appear that Jephthah has no time for such psychology. And rather than give them psychology, Jephthah gives them the sword. He has little tolerance 
for his impertinent and apparently unappreciative Israelite brothers. And you can imagine this could be true. This should be true because you can imagine all that Jephthah has gone through. Here they come want to threaten Jephthah after Jephthah has just lost his only daughter. Here they come threatening to burn down Jephthah's house after Jephthah have just sacrificed his only child. You can imagine Jephthah, you need really, 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 I don't have time for this. I remember when our, when, our, when our twins were being born and my wife was in there and they were, they were um, uh, performing surgery on her because she had to have a, a C-section in order to receive the twins. And so she's laying there on the operating table and I'm sitting there at her, at her face and, you know, conversing with her. And uh, the, the anesthesiologist is there too. And he is, you know, pumping her full of the painkillers and everything so they can perform the surgery. But he notices that I have, we were in seminary at the time, and he notices that I have a shirt on called, says, Reformed Theological Seminary. So I guess he wants to take the time now to get in theological debates. And he starts asking me all these theological questions and wanted to debate when Jesus is coming back and what eschatology do you hold. And I'm looking at him saying, man, I don't have time for your theological debates. You just monitor the anesthetic that is going into my wife. Can you imagine Jephthah saying to his brothers, I don't have time for this. What are you thinking? And rather than offer them fine, smooth, psychological, psychologically appeasing answers, Jephthah gives them the sword. And it's interesting that in this final conflict, it would seem that all of Israel's conflicts have now become full circle. But before, it was always the fighting with the enemy without. But now, because of their persistency in their sin and turning away from God, now the enemy is not without. Now the enemy is within. It's not the Philistines. It's not the Ammonites. It's not the Moabites that they're fighting against. Here, Israelite is taking up sword against Israelite. And what an awful, an awful conflict it is. So Jephthah's final conflict ever once again reveals to us Jephthah's final contradiction. And we've noticed before that Jephthah's life is not only full of conflict, but it's full of these contradictions. And we see it. We've seen it before. Even though he was a man who was a man of faith, Jephthah was also a man who was often in fights. He was a man of faith, and yet he found himself often in fights. And, you know, on one hand, you can't help but to admire a man like that, admire a man who is willing to fight, and at the same time, he is a man of faith. But then we should also be reminded that Jephthah oftentimes, and we see here, is too quick to fight, too quick to take up the sword. 
And though we should be people of faith, and though we should be willing on whatever occasion is necessary to fight for the cause of the faith, we should not be a people who are quick to fight. And yet still you look at this and you see Jephthah here and even though he is quick to fight and even though he is, he is quick and, and he's rash with his words to his brothers as he was rash in his words to, to God, nevertheless, God is still with him. God is still patiently enduring with him. But Jephthah's patience with his fellow countrymen was not what it should have been. There was no need for Jephthah to go running off at the, at the handle. He was not, it was no need for him to get rasped with his brother. Yes, Ephraim was out of place. Yes, they came with him with the wrong attitude. Yes, they probably came to him at the wrong time. There was no need. For this to escalate to the point where it escalated. But we know why fights escalate, don't we? Someone said something, and rather than responding according to the gospel, we respond according to the flesh. And flesh responds to flesh rather than gospel responding to flesh. Rather than taking the road of Gideon, Jephthah takes the road of the sword. So he tells his fellow countrymen, he says to his fellow countrymen, you know, I called you, I called you, I called out to you when we were going to battle and none of you came to save us and therefore we took it in our own hands and God saved us. Notice the contradiction there again. God saved us. Here is a man who is willing to give praise and adoration to God. Here is a man who is willing to acknowledge that God has been on his side, that God has saved him. And then with the same voice, he takes up arms against his brother. Praises God on the one hand. And then he goes to fight with his fellow countrymen on the other. This is the contradictions that we see all the time. He fights with the recognition that God is his savior, that God is his sword, that God is his shield. And yet at the same time, he looks at the people of God and doesn't respond in faith, responds in the flesh. You know, you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, and it is there reminds us that Jephthah is a man of faith. The Bible says that Jephthah, along with all of the other men of faith and the men and women of faith in the scripture, the Bible says that Jephthah is a man of faith, that he is one amongst the cloud of witnesses to whom we need to give attention. Now, we might be able to understand, you know, that Othniel would be in there. And we might be able to understand that Gideon would be in there and Barak would be in there. But Jephthah, 
Jephthah among those listed in the hall of faith? What about all of the contradictions in his life? How is it that he is, he is to be commended when on one hand he worships God and with the other one he slews his brothers? How on the one hand he can respond in faith and then turn around and respond in the flesh? It's amazing. A man of faith who seeks God, who prays for God's justice, who vows to God, who gives credit to God, here at the end of his life is responsible for the death of 42,000 of his fellow Israelites. Talking about the contradictions. How can this be? Well, beloved, I think if we're honest, we all are part of the same contradictions. Our lives are just full of these contradictions. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the life of Jephthah and we saw our own selves. And we're reminded that on one hand, we are so quick to respond in faith when we're around those, around the community of saints. Everybody is holy. Everybody is sanctified. Everybody is faithful. But get us out from around the brothers and sisters of faith. Get us out from around East Point Church. And lo and behold, the flesh rises up not only in our hearts but upon our lips and even in our hands. I was watching the, um, an interview Barbara Walters did with uh, uh, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and um, she asked President Obama, she said, President Obama, do you swear? And he said, oh yeah, oh yeah, quite a bit, yeah. How often do you swear? He said, oh, oh, quite often. She said, when was the last time you swore? He looked at his clock. He said, what time is it? <laughs> and then the very next sentence, she said, do you pray? Oh, yeah, I pray. I pray every day. Oh, yeah, I pray. I pray every day. And I said, those are the contradictions that all of us live with. Those are the contradictions that we not only see in Jephthah, but we see in our own lives if we are honest. And those are the contradictions when we see them, we should say, that ought not be. So we see here and that come to the end of the life of Jephthah, we see these, this, this, this final conflict. And then we see this final contradiction. But what does this teach us? I think it teaches us three lessons. The life of Jephthah teaches us three lessons that I don't want us to miss. And the first one that it teaches us is that we need to be careful with our words. We need to be careful with our words. Nothing, beloved, says the fruit of the Spirit like sanctification and controlling our tongue. And Jephthah reminds us of this, you know. He reminds us that while sticks and stones may break our bones, words tend to hurt as well. And they do. 
For he spoke too quickly and he spoke too rash. And what did it do? It caused the death of his daughter. His words. But then we see the words here of his fellow Israelites, the Ephraimites. Well, they speak too quickly and they speak too rash. In fact, they are very antagonistic in their words. For they call Jephthah and his fellow Gileadites fugitives, illegitimate sons of Israel. You better know that Jephthah didn't take too kindly to be called illegitimate. The Bible says that's the reason they went to war against them, because of the name calling. And like too many of us, Jephthah struggled with his tongue. He was passionate, he was talkative, and at times struggled to keep his mouth. Can I get a witness? You know, um, I tell people that those of us who, uh, who live by their tongue are only a moment away from offending somebody. For the more you talk, the more likely you are to say the wrong thing. And so it is when these, when, these, when these fugitives, when these fugitive Evermites, they come down by the river and they're trying to escape because a lot of them had already been scattered and now they're trying to escape from Jephthah and his fellow Gileadites and they come down to the river and they say, oh, are you an Ephraimite? And the guy said, no, 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 we're not Ephraimites. No, 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 man. We're just trying to make safest passes over. And they said, is that right? Well, do us a favor. Pronounce for us the word shibboleth. And apparently the Ephraimites had a problem with this word. Apparently they had a problem with pronouncing this this word. And so instead of saying shibboleth, the Ephraimites would say sibboleth. And because they could not pronounce a word, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them were slain. I remember when I first moved down to Georgia from Michigan and I was working in this office downtown and there was this older gentleman in there and um, I had to make a run down to, um, down to, a, to, a, to a town down in South Georgia. And so the gentleman asked me, he said, son, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Albany. And he said, Where? I said, I'm going to Albany, Georgia. He said, son, that's Albany. And I knew right then (laughs) I wasn't in Michigan anymore. (laughs) Albany? Everywhere in the continental United States, outside of perhaps Georgia and Alabama, that's Albany. But in Georgia, that's Albany. So it was when they came to the river. It wasn't Sibboleth. It was Shibboleth. Because they could not pronounce that word. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands 
was slain. You notice how throughout this account of Jephthah, so much hinges on the tongue. Does not the Bible remind us in Proverbs 21 and verse 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Amen. Keeps his mouth and his tongue, keeps himself out of trouble. The Bible reminds us of Proverbs verse 18 and verse 21 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Nowhere is that more true than when those brothers came down by that river. Death and life was in the power of their tongue. But not only with them, it was also the case with Jephthah. As he spoke that rash vow to about his daughter, he brought death. But also, but also, when he spoke to the Israelites, to the, to the elders of Gilead, and promised that he would be their leader, promised that he would be their commander, promised that he would be their head, he spoke to them life and deliverance. Why? Because in our mouths, in that sense, beloved, there's power, there's death and life in the power of the tongue. But unfortunately, but unfortunately, we, like President Barack Obama, find that our tongues contain blessing and cursing. And James reminds us in chapter 3 that this should not be so. But our tongues should be used for the blessing of people. Our tongues should be used for the encouragement of people. Our mouths and our words should be used for the glory of God and the gospel. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 12 that by our words we shall be justified and by our words we shall be condemned. How important are your words? Your words are this important. They are this important because through them we speak the gospel. Through them we hear the gospel. And by them God is glorified through the redemption of his people by the gospel. With our mouths, beloved, get it. With our mouths, with our mouths, people reject Christ. But also, the Bible reminds us that it is with our mouths that we accept Christ. How powerful is the tongue? Well, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's power, there's death and life in the tongue. Jephthah reminds us to be careful with our words, for in them is life. And in them is death. Would you, with your mouth, confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? 
Would you, with your mouth, give praise and honor and glory to Christ? Would you, with your mouth, acknowledge him as the Lord of lords and the King of kings? Acknowledge him not only with your heart, but also acknowledge him with your mouth. Let blessings flow from you so that you would know not only by our words are we condemned, but more importantly, by our words, according to Christ, we are justified. Jephthah reminds us that we need to be careful with our words, but not only be careful with our words, but we need to be clear about our God. For through it all, this is the amazing thing, through it all, Jephthah kept returning back and back and back again to the providence of God. One thing you get in the story of Jephthah is that Jephthah believed in Jehovah. I, I, I don't think this is disputable. He believed in God. And though he does not always make the right decisions, and though he doesn't always say the right thing, he does consistently give praise to where praise is due. Jehovah God Almighty. It should be a, a, a reminder to us, beloved, that we should be reminded of who God is and what God has done all the time. No matter what else is going on in our life, no matter how wrong we get in situations, no matter what else we say, when the time comes to give praise where praise is due, those who belong to God need always remember where the credit goes, where the praise goes, who really is God. Jephthah reminds us that we need to be clear on God because our lives are but a vapor. We are here today and we are gone tomorrow. And those of us who are most impressive today can often be most disappointing tomorrow. And therefore, we need to be clear on where our real allegiance is. We need to be clear on where and whom our faith really lies. It must rely in him who says, I am the Lord your God, I change not. It must be in him who says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Be clear on who God is. Be clear that you know that when we sing, great is your faithfulness. You're not talking about my faithfulness, and I'm not talking about your faithfulness. I'm talking about the faithfulness of God Almighty. No matter what else is going on in Jephthah's life, when Jephthah is given opportunity to make known who is in control and who gets the credit, Jephthah points back to God. Be clear. Be clear on who your God is. Be clear on who you give credit to. Be clear on who you are singing about. Be clear on whom you're praying to. Be clear. And others would know is God and God alone. 
Be clear on who your Savior is. Be clear that it's about Jesus. I may do a lot of wrong things, yes. And because I tend to talk too much, I will from time to time say the wrong thing. But when given opportunity, I must let people know. Don't look at me. It's God who saves. It is God who has delivered me. It is God who has kept me. Don't look at me. Look to Christ. So Jephthah reminds us that we need to be careful with our words, that we need to be clear on our God. And lastly, the life of Jephthah reminds us that we need to be quick to repent and believe. Quick to repent and believe. Repentance and faith, beloved, are not momentary exercises. They are not momentary exercises. They are not once in a lifetime or even occasional occurrences. But they are the daily expression of lives lived before the face of God. Every day, moment by moment. The problem with Israel at the time of the judges and even with Jephthah is that they saw belief and repentance as temporary, occasional expressions. They would repent and believe after they had gone astray and after things had gotten so bad and so far out of the way that finally they would come around and realize, well, maybe we need to repent. Well, that is what happens when repentance becomes occasional, when belief in Christ is just a happenstance, a once in a while thing. The book of Judges and Jephthah in particular is reminding us this morning that belief and repentance is an everyday occurrence. Israel's lack of repentance, what they did is they allowed sin to fester. They allowed unbelief to grow. And we all know what happens when, when sin festers. We all know what happens when sin festers. It takes it, it gets down in us, and that anger becomes bitterness. Don't let your sin fester. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, but not only don't let the sun go down on your anger, don't let the sun go down on opportunities of repentance. Someone, Thomas Brooks, a great Puritan, said this, Repentance is a grace and must have its daily operation in our lives just as all graces do. Do you need daily bread? You need daily repentance. Do you need daily grace? You need daily forgiveness. So you need to repent. When? When should you repent? Anytime. Anytime. 
That is the message that we see at the cross. The cross reminds us. Jesus on the cross, his death and his resurrection reminds us that now repentance is any time. That you don't have to wait till once of the year for someone to come and offer a sacrifice. The sacrifice has been made once and for all, and therefore repentance is an all-day, everyday occurrence. We come all the time to repent. The question is, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Do you believe yourself a sinner? And you can repent. That's all it takes. It's the belief in the one who is willing to forgive you and the belief that you need forgiven. That's all it takes. And when can I do it? You can do it now. You can do it any time. Don't let the sun go down on your opportunity to repent. Come and repent now. A young man came to his preacher. His preacher was preaching on repentance. And he says, well, pastor, I'm going to repent before I die. The pastor says, son, you might die today. Repent now. For today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. Repent today. Believe in Christ today. When should you repent? Anytime. Why should you repent? Because, beloved, repentance is that which Satan does not want you to do, and it is that which God and the holy angels most rejoice in your doing. That's why you repent. Because it is that which will cost you nothing. But it is that that cost Christ it all. For on the cross, he bought your repentance. He paid for it. Do you believe? At the cross, he gained for you your repentance. And if you would repent, not only does it not cost you anything, but ultimately it will give you the greatest thing, the assurance of your salvation, the hope of heaven, and the assurance of eternal life. That's what repentance does. Why should you repent? Because at Calvary, mercy is great and grace is free. And pardon for your soul is multiplied to thee. And there your burdened soul finds Liberty at Calvary. That's why we repent. Because Christ comes and he's all, he offers us daily, every day, the grace of 
repentance. Oh, beloved, be careful with your words. Indeed, be clear on your God. But also, let us be quick to repent. You know, the glorious, glorious and the wonderful thing about having communion every week is that we get to come and we get to see and taste the repentance that has been brought for us. We get to behold the Savior, not only in Him coming to our ears, but He comes to our eyes and even comes to our mouths and we get to taste and see that he is good. That his mercy, his mercy, the grace of his forgiveness endures forever. You know, oftentimes when we come to the communion table, it's quiet and it's somber and we are serious and and straight-faced. And indeed, there's a time for that. But you ought to remember now that we are not Catholics. And therefore, we are not afraid of dropping the bread or spilling the wine, so we don't have to be afraid when we come to the Lord's table. But we come rejoicing. We come glad. We come with joy and smiles on our face. Why? Because here, grace is free. Here, pardon has been multiplied to my soul. And I rejoice that I can say, Father, I have sinned. And he says, yes, now go and sin no more. And how many times will he do that? How many times can I come to the communion table and repent? As long as there is a God in heaven, you can come. Every day that there is a Christ on the throne, you can come. And that's why we rejoice. Because at Calvary, it was all paid for. And that's why we can come boldly. That's why we come quickly. That's why Christ says, come, you come, come without money, come without price, you just come, bring what you are, you just come, bring your sins, bring your iniquities, bring your troubles, bring your worries, bring your cares, you just come. He promises not only to forgive, but then he's going to restore, give you grace upon grace, and change your crying into rejoicing, your mourning into dancing. That is the joy with which we come to repent, even to the Lord's table, even this morning. Would you come? Would you come? Let us pray.